Savior, please. Good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you be turning to Mark chapter 7 or swiping or whatever you do, opening up, whatever you have in front of you. We're going to be studying for Mark chapter 7 this morning and we'll meet there in just a moment. We're glad that you're here. We're thankful to see several who are back with us that have not been able to be with us for a while. It's good to see Mr. Tom uh, back with us and, and several others who can make it out when they're able to. And we're grateful that you are here. It's good to see most of you. Most of you I haven't seen yet, and I need to ex explain that. And uh, it's due to an unfortunate situation in our family, but uh, our dear Caroline did test positive yesterday uh, for COVID, and so the whole family is at home at this time. No one else is showing any symptoms, so I thought I could probably come and just keep my distance and stay away from everyone. So uh, if you don't see me or I don't speak to you, it's not because I'm mad at you. I uh, just kind of keep my distance today and probably uh, not really visit with folks and try to, to uh, keep some of that so we don't want to uh, get anyone else sick and hope that no one else in our family passes it around. So we just wanted to ask for your prayers. She's doing okay, but just wanted to keep everyone at home. And one other note here for our Bible Bowl kids, uh, we were going to have practice this afternoon, but we'll uh, cancel that for today and then pick up those chapters uh, later when we meet, meet again. But it is good to see you. We're thankful that you would be here as we seek to study God's Word uh, for just a few moments and try to encourage ourselves with a particular chapter here from Mark chapter 7. I don't know about you, uh, how you read the Bible, if you've been following along with some of the reading plans that we have put out. Uh, very often you'll read two or three chapters a day if you kind of go through those Bible reading plans that we put together. We didn't put them together, but try to make available for you. If you're like me, sometimes you get behind. When you get behind, you're reading five, six, seven, or eight chapters a day to, to try to get caught up. It makes it a little harder to really read, to understand, and pay attention what's going on. But if you keep up and you kind of maybe read two or three chapters a day, especially as you go through the accounts of the Gospels, according uh, the Gospels, uh, what happened with Jesus there, and as those were recorded for us, then it's very encouraging to take little sections and think about exactly what was happening in the life of Jesus. There's so much that's going on, so many people that are coming to him both to try to trap him and also to try to be healed by him, but you catch little snippets. If you take small sections and you really pay attention to what's going on, you think about who's coming and who's going and that kind of thing and what they're saying, it can be very encouraging. I'd like for us this morning to look at Mark chapter 7, the first 23 verses in particular, because there is a section of scripture here in which we can learn a few things even for ourselves today. Well, there's really three interactions that take place that we're going to look at here. Uh, Jesus speaks to three different groups of people, and we want to break them down and see exactly what we can learn from what takes place here in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 7. There is a, a parallel account in Matthew chapter 15 of what takes place here, but we're going to focus in on Mark chapter 7. Let's look at the first few verses together. Mark records for us, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with, def eat bread with defile, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he begins in verse number 6 that he answers and says to them, but we'll pause there right now. Because the first interaction that we're going to take a look at this morning is Jesus' discussion here with the Pharisees and scribes. <clears throat> I don't know if discussion is the best word. You know, often people would come and they would try to trap Jesus and ask him these questions to cause a problem. You're probably familiar with the term Pharisees. The Pharisees uh, were a group of people, a group of Jews that kind of came around about 200 years or so before Jesus came to the earth, and they were very strict. They were considered the strictest sect of the Jews, strictest group of the Jews. In fact, if you were going to become a Pharisee, you were going to take a pledge, and that pledge would say that you were going to keep every point of the law. But as we see here, as Mark records for us, not just every point of the law, but also the traditions that they had, the traditions that these elders had come up with. You're going to keep all of that. 
In fact, there's a couple of words that really come to mind as we think about the Pharisees. One is, if you were going to mention the word Pharisee, you usually think of the word legalist. And that's even today, when people will call others Pharisees, what they're meaning is you're a legalist. You you go by the law and you bind law in particular. You will bind law where there is no law. You'll make up laws because of your traditions and hold other people to those laws. And you're a legalist. Now, the other word that we find in Scripture that's usually attached with the word Pharisee is hypocrite. In fact, most often, if you find the word Pharisee in the New Testament, you will see the word hypocrite very nearby because that is what we commonly think of when we think of the word Pharisee. They were play actors. They were wearing a mask, so to speak. They were hypocrites. They were very strict in what they believed. The scribes, of course, were a group of people who would go around writing, transcribing, or writing the law and holding people to all of these laws. But their intention... Their job was to follow around Jesus and to try to find fault. Now, not these particular people that we meet here in the first couple of verses, not not these men in particular, but in general, the elders, uh, those who had a sort of higher up authoritative position uh, among the Jews would send these Pharisees and these scribes to follow Jesus and to seek to find fault with him. In fact, Mark records for us in Mark chapter 3 and verse number 2 that they were seeking to accuse him. And then a few verses later, Mark chapter 3 and verse number 6, that they were seeking to destroy him. That's what they're after. Their job was to follow him around or they would send some here, he would move, they'd send some somewhere else. But to follow him and to find something wrong. Now their point is... In this particular matter, as they approach him in Mark chapter 7, their point is defilement. The charge that they're going to want to bring against him and really against his disciples, those with him, is that of defilement. And by defilement, we mean not washing your hands correctly. Now, we're not talking about not washing your hands with soap. Uh, We're not talking about uh, singing happy birthday through twice while you wash your hand to make sure you get rid of all the germs. We're not talking about that. But they are talking about that defilement comes from the not washing your hands and even some of these other things correctly. It's interesting to note, if you know your history, that the Pharisees were essentially afraid of the Gentiles. Right? During this time period, during this part of the world, during this time period, there's pretty much the Jews and the Gentiles. And if you were a Jew... If you were a Pharisee, maybe in particular, you were afraid of the Gentiles. Now, not afraid that they might overtake you physically or or in a military kind of way that they were going to come after you and take your life. You just didn't want to be near them. You didn't want to touch them. You'd be considered dirty if you had been around the Gentiles. And you see that by inspiration. Mark records that for us here at the beginning of Mark chapter 7. He says, and he talks about that when they come from the marketplace, they don't wash properly. Now, please hear me and understand very carefully, they took this very seriously. I I mean, this is serious business, and this accusation is serious business. You know, I was thinking, if someone came up to me or you and they accused us of something, they're going to accuse us of what? Murder? Uh, Theft? Stealing something? Uh, You know, they're going to try to hold something to us that's like serious. That's what they would accuse us of. If someone came up to us and accused us of not washing our hands, we'd probably laugh at them. Uh, You mean that's what you're coming at me with is washing my hands properly? But this was a very serious accusation. And there's a couple of ways that we know that. Number one, one thing written for us is William Barclay, the noted theologian, said that there was once a rabbi who had water, but he used his water for his washing ceremonial washing of things so much so that it was recorded he almost died of thirst but he's not going to drink it because he better make sure that he washes everything including his hands correctly not only that but do you recall in john chapter 2 specifically verse number 6 we commonly refer to this as jesus's first miracle right he turned water into wine many people are familiar with this but in john chapter 2 and specifically verse 6 Remember, as Jesus is going to do this, they notice or get and gather six pots. And it's said by Mark or there, or excuse me, by John on that occasion, that there were six pots, each holding somewhere between 20 to 30 gallons. Why would we need 180 gallons of water and six pots unless we need to always keep things washed? 
They took this very, very seriously. Having those six pots and washing everything in this ceremonial fashion was a standard Jewish practice. And so this is, even though it may seem silly to us, a pretty heavy accusation. And the Jews lived in fear of contamination by the Gentiles. And so here's their answer to that. Well, we will just go through this ceremony, this ceremonial ritualistic washing of everything. Were they worried about germs? Maybe, maybe not, not necessarily. But if we just wash everything and we make sure that everyone else does it, and if they don't do it, we're going to accuse them and maybe even punish them, then we'll be good. So that's their point here. That's what they're after. And once they make this question to Jesus, he begins to answer them then in verse number 6. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, notice there's our word, hypocrites. As it is written, these people draw near or honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. You see, one of the points we can take from this first interaction here is Jesus says to make human law is to violate divine law. To make human law is to violate divine law. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that we should not obey the government, that there cannot be any types of laws or rules that we follow in a general sense. Uh, Certainly, we think about the the teachings of the Bible on government and, and obeying our government. That's part of this. But when we begin to hold people to our traditions, to human laws and make those, then we are going beyond God's law. What Jesus says here is that, guess what? This was foretold. This was known about. In Isaiah chapter 29, in verse number 13, Isaiah prophesies. And if you know your history, Isaiah is prophesying almost 700 years before this moment in Mark chapter 7. But he said, this is coming. And we knew this because this is the way that you were going to act. And Jesus essentially says, in quoting from Isaiah, that these people are giving lip service. They're doing all the right things on the outside. But the result was that they were actually lifting their own traditions above God's laws. And he's going to make that example several times here. And by the way, that's not a new thing. That's not even an old thing. In fact, in some of the reading that I was doing, one of the uh, a preacher who had kind of written about this passage, I was reading what he had to say about this, and he said he knew of a situation. He had been studying the Bible with a lady, and she had been a part of a particular denomination. He didn't mention it, but this particular denomination taught that a person had to be baptized three times, once for the Father, once for the Son, and once for the Spirit. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Not only that, he went on to say that she said they would teach that a person had to be baptized face forward. I, once again, don't know where they're finding any of that. But you would be remiss if you don't think, you'd be wrong if you don't think that people will make traditions and hold people to that and go above and beyond God's law, which is not a good thing. There are certain denominations that sometimes teach that a person can't have caffeine, that a person can't have a blood transfusion. We can go on and on with certain things that people will do, traditions that they will make that are passed down, that people will hold to, And they will treat, as we say, they'll treat as gospel. That's the way we say it sometimes, even though it's found nowhere in the Bible. In fact, the Jews had a a document. If you kind of know any of your Jewish history, it was often called the Mishnah. And there were 63, 63, excuse me, tractates in there. The last 12 of those tractates were addressed to this idea of cleaning. That's how serious they took it. And they thought, they said, they believed They were protecting God's word. But what Jesus is pointing out here is they were really elevating what they said needed to be done above God's word. And he goes on to say, let me illustrate that. Beginning in verse number 9, he says, let me give you a real life example. And there's a word here that you may have heard before, you may have been curious about, but that is Corbin. Now that's with an A, not with an I. We have our own Corbins over here, but it's not talking about them, okay? Jerry's wiping his brow. He's thankful for that. But this idea of Corbin, Jesus says, hey, let me go further. Let me give you a real life example. 
this idea of Corban. As you read or look at verses 9 through 13 there, what he essentially says is, the law of Moses says that you are to honor your father and mother. You remember that? Exodus chapter 20. In fact, Jesus quotes it here, right? Verse number 10, Moses says, Exodus 20 and verse 12, the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. He also quotes from Exodus chapter 21 in verse number 17 with this same idea. And we know that even the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse number 3 would say, Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. So the teaching of the Old Testament was that we are to honor our parents. And by the way, there's no timetable on that. You don't get to get to a certain point and say, well, I don't care about them anymore, or I'm not going to care for them anymore. Think about it. There were no government programs. There's no social security. There were no nursing homes. But you know what? It didn't matter because God had a plan. And the plan was we take care of our family. Even as children, we take care of our parents when the time comes, and we know. Many of you have been dealing with this, and will deal with it, that the time comes that as your parents took care of you, then you maybe take care of, of them again one day. But here's the problem. Even though God had a plan, the Jews had another plan, right? They had a better plan in their mind. Their plan was this idea of Corban. They had come up with this other scheme, and that scheme was that you could say this word Corban, and you could designate a part of your finances to the temple treasury. And that's kind of what this word means here, Corbin. It means a vow, or it means temple treasury. And it's this idea that I could take a certain portion of my income or my goods and say Corbin and call those Corbin, and then all those things are supposed to be dedicated to God. And then I look at my parents and I say, sorry, guys, I'm out. I'm out of money. I don't have any way to take care of you. And sorry, you're just kind of out of luck right now. So what they're doing is they're taking this teaching, which has nothing to do with what God has said to do, that you would do this and set it aside and you would be then not, able, or not have to take care of your parents anymore. You can tag these finances, so to speak, and they're not to be used for personal things. And you can see, it, it's almost like it, it sounds crazy, you know, to say, well, why would a person do that? But these Jews, these Pharisees, that's exactly what they're doing. And so Jesus says... That to make a human law is to violate divine law. And here's an illustration, this idea of Corbin. But notice at the end of verse number 13, he even says there, and many such things you do. He essentially looks at him and says, you know what? I mean, we're both fully aware of the situation here. I could have picked from a list of things. I mean, there is a myriad of things that I could have chosen from because you guys have a whole long list of traditions that you elevate. But here's just one, and he talks about Corbin there in particular. Now we move on to verse number 14 of this particular passage, and the second interaction that Jesus has is with the multitude, verses 14 through 16. Now, as these Pharisees and these scribes would come to him, I have no doubt in my mind that it had to have been frustrating, right? And I, I tell you this often, I don't mean to be irreverent, I'm not trying to you know, to make light of what Jesus was, who he was, or what he did. But he was human, and probably had some human emotion, even if he didn't sin. And you can imagine that as he would get to a place, and these Pharisees and these scribes come walking up, that we would, especially, probably roll our eyes. I mean, seriously, these guys again coming to say something else? And so he turns his attention from these Pharisees and scribes, who are difficult, who are causing problems, to a more honest group. And it tells us in verse 14 that he called the multitude to himself and he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. He essentially says, depending on the version that you're looking at, hearken, hear me. Listen very carefully to the crowd that is gathered there. And it's interesting because there is a hint. Now, these folks aren't going to recognize all of it. We're going to see that with the disciples in just a moment. But there's a hint. The fact that we are here today and we can look back on these writings and these occasions, there's a hint of what's going to come in Acts chapter 10 as Peter is going to have this vision and the gospel is going to be open to the Gentiles, to the whole world. We know that at first the gospel was going just to the Jews. 
to the Jews. And so it's in Acts chapter 10 that Peter has that vision. He goes to Cornelius' household, and then the gospel is opened up. So there's this hint there. Because the other thing that takes place in Acts chapter 10, in Peter's vision, deals with this idea of meat and what people eat and what they put into their body. So they're not going to recognize all of it yet because the time has not come. But there's a bit of a hint that we can look back and see here in verse 15 that Jesus is sort of setting the table, if you will, just a little, to let them know that possibly that there's going to come a time when it's not going to be Jew and Gentile, but it will be Christian. God desires all men everywhere to repent. And so there's a hint of that here as he begins to talk about, hey, guess what? It's not about just what you put in or the meat that you eat. Paul would address that later in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the idea that meat, that it's all good if God has given it to us. We should be thankful for it. So not only is the meat going to be okay, in a sense, what you eat, but the Gentiles are not bad either, in a sense. They're going to have a chance to come to repentance and to be saved. So there's a hint of that here as he addresses the multitude. But then thirdly, the third interaction is with his disciples. And it begins in verse number 17. And it says, Mark records for us, when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. Now, depending on the version, you may see the word parable there. What takes place here is not necessarily what we commonly refer to as one of Jesus' parables. However, the idea of a parable, of course, is that there is a meaning that goes along with something. Some people would say, and and there's other passages where it talks about the idea that sometimes parables were not understood by everyone. And so here, they're not all going to catch everything that Jesus is saying. But we're then moved into this third interaction, which is a a private moment. You know, I, I really like these. Because it's a a moment where there's no more multitude, there's no more big show, not that Jesus is putting on a show in that sense, but there's no more large crowd, but there's a private moment here between him and his disciples. So they get a moment to ask him, those closest to him, those who would continue his teaching when he's going to be gone very shortly, he has a moment to talk to them. And they're going to ask. I believe in Matthew's account, gives it directly, attributes it directly to Peter. But they're going to ask, Jesus, what are you talking about? We don't understand. And so in verse 18, he begins by asking them this question where we begin to see what is possibly part of his frustration. Why aren't you getting it? How is it that you're still not understanding what I'm saying? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile a man or defile him? Because it does not enter his heart but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Most of you know that I use the New King James here most of the time in the pulpit, so some of those words may have sounded different, and unfortunately, we don't have the time this morning to talk about each one of those, but here's the key. Back to our title. What's the point? Why do these kind of connect together? What's taking place in this particular section? Here's the key. Real defilement comes from within. That's what Jesus is teaching, not about the measure of dirt not about how dirty your hands are, not about who you might have been around, but real defilement comes from within. In fact, Jesus says the root cause here is that there's a heart problem. I mean, he even uses the word, again, at least it's translated that way in the New King James, as he says that it's the heart. When you take something in, we teach our children, it doesn't go in your heart. Right? It goes through the other proper systems in our body, our digestive tract, it goes into our stomach, and it even leaves our body at some point as we think about the way God designed our bodies. But it does not touch our heart, and thus is not the problem. The root cause is that there is a heart problem. Now here's the thing about this. This is not new teaching, right? I know we're in Mark chapter 7, but think about Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Because this is simply a continuation of what he says in Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21, verse 27, 33, 
38, 43, five different times at least there in the Sermon on the Mount. Towards the very beginning, he says, you have heard it said, but now I say to you. You have heard it said, don't do the physical act. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Yes, but I'm saying to you, it begins in the heart. And he begins to point out that it's a heart problem. And we have heart problems then, and we have heart problems now, if we're being honest about it. An external change is just that, an external change. You can change your clothes all day. You can take a bath. You can wash your hands. You can do all of those things. But they're just external changes. They don't address the heart problem, the spiritual problem. In fact, Jesus would say of this same group, you recall Matthew chapter 23 and verse number 27. Here we see it again. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. They're connected together, all those words. Pharisees, scribes, and hypocrites because you are like whitewashed tombs. There on that occasion, Jesus even uses the word beautiful. He says you're beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, just full of dead men's bones. Your outside looks great, but your inside is rotten. And that is a problem that we continue to certainly face today. We often underestimate the importance of our thoughts and our feelings and our innermost moments. We can set those inside and say, well, I'm doing all the right things on the outside. We have been discussing this at great length in our Wednesday night class. We want you to be here. We want you to be a part of our services and the things that we do together. But if you're showing up to sit there in your Sunday best and check a box, your inside can be full of dead men's bones. I can see a crowd that sits here that is beautiful on the outside. But we have to make sure that we take care of our hearts as well. Paul would write in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Whatsoever things are true, are honest, are just, are pure, are lovely, are of good report. That's what you need to be thinking on. That's what should be filling your heart. Not all this other nasty, dirty stuff. Not just who maybe you touch in a physical sense. Even in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 3 and 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Paul would write, For, we walk, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We've talked before about how we can compartmentalize our lives and we set aside our Christian part and we set aside our, our other parts, our work part or our family part. Every thought to the obedience of Christ. And it is not physical. We're not worried about weapons, at least not in a spiritual sense. We're worried about our hearts, making sure that those are pure. Corrupt thoughts lead us to sin. James chapter 1 and verse number 15. James says, When lust hath conceived, and it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. I don't mean to add to add to the Bible with the word lust is used there but could we not go ahead and add in some other things maybe yes lust is part of that but it could be many other evil thoughts some of these other words that Jesus uses and say that when those things conceive they bring forth sin and sin brings about death you see here's the thing the world says that you are what you do right I can't see your insides I can't see your heart I can't tell what's going on in your head so all I see is your outside. And so the world says, well, you are what you do. But Jesus says that you do what you are. That may sound a little trivial, may sound a little trite, but think about exactly what it's saying. Because if what we're saying is true, that real defilement begins in the heart, then it's going to eventually show itself in outward actions. Your actions reflect your heart. You remember in John chapter 13, in verse number 35, Jesus has just taken action. He's just washed the disciples' feet. And he's brought about to them this, this action that he's done. And he tells them, you know what he tells them, right? We sing it. John 13, 35, they'll know we are Christians by our love. They're not called Christians yet there, of course. And John 13 is Jesus hasn't died on the cross. But he says, what he says is, they'll know you are my disciples by your love. Well, by your feeling, 
by the way that you feel on the outside, by how you care about someone, by your love. No, by your actions, by what you do. The love which you show by your actions, that's how they'll know that you are a Christ follower. Think about the list here very quickly again from Matthew, excuse me, Mark chapter 7. This is, these are serious sins, right? And we talk about the list that Paul puts out there sometimes, but, but these are serious sins. But notice as you look at them again, they're not accidental, right? They're not accidental sins. These are not just things that pop up overnight. You say, oh, I can't believe that I did that. These are not accidental sins. They're not surprises, adulteries, and fornication. You remember what Jesus said there? Once again, it doesn't just happen out of the blue. It just kind of just pop out of nowhere. He said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 28 that now it's about whoever, whosoever looks at a woman. Because you just don't fall into somebody else's arms, at least not in that kind of way in committing those kinds of actions. It's because you have a problem in your heart. And that problem is, as James said, lust. What about murder? As he says here, as Jesus says here in Mark chapter 7. You know, most of us just don't say, Oh, I'm sorry, my gun just fired in your direction. Or I just tripped and stabbed you with a knife and took your life. No, murder begins because you have a hate problem in your heart. What about theft? I just accidentally took that, stuck it in my pocket, and you know, got, grabbed all these things and took all your money. It doesn't happen by accident. He also lists here in Mark chapter 7, right after it, but covetousness. That's where thefts begin. It doesn't just come out of the blue. We have a heart problem sometimes. We have a desire for something else. So the world says you are what you do, but Jesus says you do what you are, what's really going on inside. And most of us can attest to a situation where we thought we knew someone, but then it took a little bit of time, but eventually the truth showed. We could tell who they really are. And it frustrates us when other people can't see that, but it's usually found out. Because if we do what we are, and if our heart is rotten, our insides are full of dead men's bones, then that's absolutely what's going to come out even if we're pretty good at play-acting, being hypocrites like the Pharisees were for a short time. One more passage and we'll be finished. Titus chapter 3. Here's what's ironic. I think this is interesting. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Here's what is ironic about that. Paul begins writing to Titus at the beginning of chapter 3, and he talks about some of the evil things that we need not, need not do. Verse 3 in particular. We were once foolish, disobedient, had various lusts and pleasures, but... Verse number four, when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, that's what the Pharisees would say, you do enough, you keep every point of the law, you'll be okay, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. How? Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I find ironic here. After all that's said and done, Washing is actually still needed, right? Washing is still a part of it. It's not the ceremonial washing. It's not the showy washing where it's like, hey, everybody, watch me. I'm washing my hands, all right? I'm cleaning off all these people that I've been around and all these things. It's not that, but yes, washing is still needed. In fact, we talked about it in a recent sermon, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse number 11. You have been washed, Paul would say. After all these things that you've done, you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified. Washing still needs to take place. But real defilement, it doesn't come from washing the germs, getting the dirt off our flesh, being around someone. Real defilement comes from within. Do you need to change your inside then? Do you need to change your heart? You see, a washing is still needed, but it's the washing in the water of baptism. It's the washing of the blood of Christ that removes our sins. And we're thankful for this opportunity that presents itself here. Even in this moment, we're about to sing this song that's been selected. One of our elders will come here to the front. If you're interested in coming forward and making known your need, maybe it's to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can be added to the church by the Lord, to his church, and you can begin to live faithfully. All things are ready. All things are prepared. We're thankful for that opportunity, even as we had a great occasion to take advantage of that last Sunday if you're here this morning and you're not a child of God why not do you need to change your inside where real defilement takes place so that your outside maybe looks beautiful which is great and fine but your inside looks correct as well and you're faithfully serving God
Maybe you're here this morning, you are a child of God, but you've struggled to remain faithful. You've wandered away, and once again, as one of our elders comes forward in just a moment, you'd like to make it known in a public fashion that you'd like to repent of your sin, confess that before an audience such as this, and ask for forgiveness. We're thankful to serve a God who is faithful to do just that, that we can again walk in the light as he is in the light. You see, I can't see your inside. No one else here can see your inside where real defilement takes place, but God can. And so as we are about to sing this song, it's not about getting right with the preacher, not about getting right with the elders. It's about getting right with God in the sense that you are a child of God and that you are living faithfully with him. We assemble here as a body for an opportunity to encourage one another. And we want to encourage you now as we stand together and as we sing. Good afternoon. We are thankful that you are back with us. If you stepped away for lunchtime or with us again here as we study together the word of God. As you see on the screen there, we're going to continue in the study that we've been doing for uh, almost three years now, I guess. Started when we first uh, moved here and began preaching here, which is called the One Word Study, uh, put together by uh, the Jenkins Institute and is meant to be a weekly study. A congregation can work through in a year, uh, but it's something I've tried to take monthly, so we're not always locked into that. We can look at other things on Sunday afternoon if we would like to in our lessons, but yet still very encouraging. I forgot to put the slide up I meant to. Uh, about some of the words that we've talked about so far. If you recall, we have grouped words, or they did, for the study, and we've kind of taken certain words that have talked about Christian character. And I can't re exactly remember this particular section, but it deals with, it deals with family, deals with people. We've talked about last month being a Christian, what the word Christian meant. Uh, today we're going to talk about elders. Next week, or next month, excuse me, we'll talk about deacons. Uh, I think we talked about mothers uh, back at the beginning of this particular section, and fathers will be coming up. Uh, and so we hope this has been beneficial to you and that it's encouraging. And today we are going to take which, which what would be considered week 23, if you're working through it in a year, uh, but month 23 for us, and think about the word elder. I do need to say as we get started that no, this is not a setup before the elders and deacons meeting this afternoon. Uh, this was planned ahead of time, and you know, except for the COVID, when we were out for COVID back at the beginning of 2020, uh, we missed a few months there, but uh, you know, we've just still been doing one of these a month as we can. Uh, I also need to say that, yes, this was planned as well before one of the elders in particular forgot who I was this morning during announcements and uh, forgot to mention me as part of that meeting this afternoon. So no hard feelings, Bob. Love you. Uh, but uh, this, was, uh, this was the discussion for this afternoon as we plan to uh, anyways. When we think about the word elder, and usually when we look at these studies, we think about what the Bible has to say. And, of course, it's shifted a little bit from what the Bible has to say about a word in general if you've been with us, we'll talk about the, uh, sometimes the Hebrew word, the Old Testament word, and sometimes we'll talk about the New Testament word. But with some of these words, we will focus a lot on the New Testament. We'll get to that in just a second. But this is one of those in particular uh, that there's really no Old Testament word to necessarily speak of the office, as we say sometimes, of an elder, the leadership position specifically, not maybe just being an elderly or older person. But when we open up our New Testament, we see God's plan for the organization of the church. We see it more than just Philippians 1.1, but it's laid out so perfectly there. We studied the book of Philippians recently on Wednesday nights, and we touched on this when we came to the beginning of the book. But Paul writes and says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints, that would be one part of church organization, the saints, the Christians who are gathered there in Christ Jesus, who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Now, I do remind you once again, as I did this morning, I use the New King James. There is a chance you might see another version of a particular word there. But this was God's plan for the organization of the church. The bishops are the overseers. And we are going to touch on the words in just a moment, especially if you have your outline in front of you, maybe from the bulletin. But the bishops listed here are the overseers of the work of a local congregation. The deacons are considered special servants of the church, and the saints include the rest of the congregation. What's interesting about this is the organization is really actually very simple, but it's God, God's plan, and it really works. Uh, Brian preached a lesson, I think, last year, maybe uh, when I was gone one Sunday on deacons. We've talked a lot about elders since I've been here, especially with Brother Bill stepping down with the idea that several of our elders are getting older and that we are uh, always interested in training up young men, both young men and even younger men, 
uh, who may be an elder one day and thinking about that and thinking about the leadership of this congregation. So we've talked a lot about some of these things, but I thought it would be beneficial for us to go ahead and, and touch on a few different points here. This organization plan, it's simple. When a congregation follows it, it works. Some of you have been a part of congregations that have only had elders and deacons. Some of you have been a part of congregations that have had uh, no leadership in that way. Maybe it was like a, just a men's business meeting or the men kind of worked together. And a lot of people have stories on both sides of that. But God's plan was for a congregation to have elders to help lead. And again, that will be a part of our points in just a few moments. Uh, we won't take the time, of course, to go over all the qualifications for this particular lesson, uh, but for some of you who this may be somewhat new to or you're trying to uh, remind yourself of some of these things, it is in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1 uh, that there are a list of what we commonly refer to as qualifications set forth in the New Testament, things that these men should hold or have. We think about uh, a few of those, being temperate, being blameless, not that they're perfect, uh, but, of course, no one can speak something about them and, and lay blame upon them, but they're blameless, able to teach, not violent and gentle. And that's just, of course, touching the surface. But it's very, very important. And, again, most of us could go around this congregation probably. We spoke individually and, and give a lot of stories, hopefully many good, but also, unfortunately, some very bad when things go wrong, whether it's someone who is not fit uh, for the office, maybe that might be placed in there for various reasons or, again, congregations that try to operate without elders sometimes can, can have issues and that kind of thing. Uh, but certainly, you're welcome to review that. Uh, there are lots of good resources. I, I could share with you several. I won't at this time, but um, the World Video Bible School has, you know, some videos up, lots of different uh, sites. And by the way, I'll just mention here again, uh, I do want to talk soon about some of those resources. Charles and I have been putting together a list, and we mentioned sharing that with you. And I want to want to do that very soon. But as always, you're welcome to to shoot me a text message or email or or call or whatever and ask, and we'd love to to share with you, where you could dig a little deeper on things such as this. One thing that we do want to say at the outset here is with this word, context matters. Now, hopefully you're saying, well, Joel, you say that a lot. And yes, because context matters in everything, in a sense, when we look at the word of God. But when a person is opening up the Bible and simply coming across words, if a person reads the word elder in the Bible, they have to determine the context in which it is being used. Let's do say for just a moment that there is an Old Testament word uh, it's spelled, I won't try to pronounce, pronounce it, but Z-A-Q-E-N, Z-A-Q-E-N, and it means in the Old Testament Hebrew to be old, and that's kind of what we think of when we think of the word, word elder or elderly. It may have been derived from another uh, you know, word that's close to it that meant beard, and so we sometimes think about uh, older folks maybe having a beard, uh, older men having a beard. It may simply refer to older men or to a ruling body of older men. You know that you read in the Bible sometimes about some of these who would sit at the city gate and maybe they would settle questions. People would come to them, the elders, so-called elders, and they would answer questions at the city gate. And so that's kind of the way the Old Testament word is used. But as we said, when we think about in particular the way we're looking at it, the idea of the office of men who serve as elders over a congregation, then that's, that's not the same thing. So context matters. But also, let's say for just a moment, it matters in the New Testament because the Greek words that are used can refer to some different things. If you have your Bible, look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, it begins by talking about church members and how we interact with one another, and that continues through part of this chapter. But 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father Younger men as brothers, here's the same idea, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. Now the word that's used there both for older men and older women is kind of a, an offshoot or a form of a word we're going to talk about in just a moment. So it can be used to refer to both of those groups of people. In Acts chapter 24, in verse number 1, it is used to describe the elders or the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now, as we touched on this morning with Jews and Jewish history, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there was this governing body, this group of men called the Sanhedrin who would make decisions and rule, and they were sometimes maybe called elders. And so in Acts 24, in verse number 1, you know, we see that similar word used. Is that what we're talking about? 
Not necessarily, so context matters. And even we see that those who oversee uh, or shepherd individual congregations, like we are meaning with this particular lesson with elders. So context does matter. Now, we also would say here, as context matters, that you might call a woman an elder in the sense that you're talking about her in a physical you know, earthly sense that maybe she is older than you. I wouldn't advise that you call her an elder and say she's older than you, but that's a whole different story. I wouldn't recommend that. Um, but you might refer to a woman as being an elder in that sense of being older. And so when we think about the Bible, there is no evidence, of course, that women served as elders. They couldn't meet the qualifications that we're not going to go through in detail, but they couldn't meet the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, particularly the one of being a husband of one wife. So certainly... Context matters even in this kind of discussion. Let's talk about a few of those words here. The first one is uh, presbyteros in Acts chapter 20 and verse number 17. If you're making notes, it's actually Acts 20, 17, and then again in verse 28, 20, 17, and 20, 28. But Paul is talking to the elders from Ephesus here. He, he wanted to meet them, he wanted to visit with them, but he says, I don't have time to come and see you on his journey, so let's meet together at Miletus. They come, and they have this sort of big powwow, as we say, meeting. It's a great one. Paul encourages them. If you recall, at the end of this particular section, uh, down verse 36, 37 of that chapter, they are crying over Paul. They're weeping together and kissing one another, the sense that they love him, he cares for them, and they want to encourage one another. But in those verses that we mentioned at the beginning, uh, Paul uses uh, these words to describe the elders, the presbyteros of the church. Now, this word can mean one who is older in the faith. And especially as we do touch on one of those qualifications from 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 6, elders are not to be new converts we kind of think about that a person who is is baptized on today maybe on Sunday doesn't need to become an elder on Monday or you know we could list a certain amount of time maybe but uh, not to be a new convert that person's not going to be ready they may be old uh, they may be older in a physical sense but not older in the faith experience is another word we know experience is not everything I can have lots of experience in something that doesn't matter but certainly that is kind of a part of this as we talk about it. So presbyteros is one word that is used in the New Testament. Uh, secondly, we think about episkopos, and I, I give you a version of this. I, I'm not a Greek scholar to talk about the exact uh, tense or form of the word, but uh, Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Paul refers to the elders as overseers, and which means the elders were to oversee all the work of the congregation. Another passage that is commonly referred to here is 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, Peter would say to these elders, to this encouragement, shepherd, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. Now, we'll, we'll come back and talk about that's, that's a, an interesting term, and it's not meant to be as someone who lords over people. You know, watching their every move, making sure every step you take is, is perfect and there's never anything wrong, but overseeing the work of the congregation. And, of course, our elders here can tell you, and if you're familiar with their work at all in general, uh, there's a lot to oversee, even from the, the smallest detail to some of the great details that need to be discussed. Uh, we also think about the word that is used, uh, poimen, that is uh, found in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 11. Paul states that elders are to shepherd the church. A shepherd has a threefold responsibility. All right, I didn't put this on the screen, but a shepherd usually has a threefold responsibility. Number one, he is to lead the flock. Elders are to provide leadership in all aspects of church work. They are to lead the flock, number one. Number two, they are to feed the flock. And of course, we're not talking about a physical sense, even as we have lunch here now very often on Sunday afternoon, but to feed the flock in a uh, spiritual sense, in a teaching sense. Elders are responsible for all the teaching that occurs in the classes, as well as the pulpit. Hopefully they are involved with what's going on. They might set up a system in which there is a deacon or a particular member who helps serve as maybe in the education department. We sometimes phrase it to help look at the things, but elders need to know uh, what's going on, what's being taught. One of the ways in which elders feed the flock is hiring a preacher. 
And then, of course, making sure that preacher is sharing the Bible and sharing truth from God's Word. And so they lead. Number two, they feed. And number three, they are to protect the sheep. Elders are to know the truth. We think about Titus chapter 1 and verse number 9. Elders are to know the truth, and by sound doctrine, they are to exhort and convict those who contradict. Elders need to not necessarily be busybodies running around with their nose and everything and every single detail or things that are going on, but they certainly need to be aware, aware of false doctrine, possibly aware of false teachers, not only maybe in our area or in the church, but in a general sense to try to help members and to, uh, again, to protect them. Elders must protect the sheep from every error, whether from within or from without the church. And by the way, we're just halfway through the lesson, but that's a lot already, right? That's a lot for elders to have to do. And of course, that is possibly or maybe connected one reason why there should be more than one elder. Uh, There's kind of several facets to that, but certainly it helps as elders are trying to do lots of things that they can spread the work. Again, there's more that could be said about that of why we have more than one, but that certainly would be a benefit as we think about three or four or five who can help uh, do various things. Uh, In the book that's suggested here, I've shared with you there's a devotional book that is part of this study. There is a study guide. In the study guide, that section that's written, uh, the person that wrote that suggested that in preaching about the word elder, the logical place to begin after talking about the word and the way it's used understanding it is to look at the work of elders. We talked a little bit about it already, but what is the work of elders? And let's notice about six things here about the work of elders. The work of elders, or an elder, number one, is seen in the terms that are used. The terms that are used to reference an elder. Elders should mean experience and wisdom. They're often, hopefully, able to counsel members of the congregation in various areas. They're not professional counselors. They don't hold, maybe may not hold degree in that area, may not be certified or able to discuss every single thing that goes on in somebody's life, especially with a lot of the mental illness and things we have today and that people deal with, uh, but they hopefully are able to help. So elder uh, kind of refers uh, to that. Bishop or overseer would kind of refer to equipping for mentoring. And as we've said, we hope that our elders are helping train young men to be elders in the future as they meet those qualifications and desire that office. But uh, the idea of bishop or overseer would kind of suggest mentoring. I personally, and this is just for my two cents, but I personally have come over the years, even working with a congregation in the role of a preacher, have come to really appreciate the term shepherd. And we commonly refer to the word elder and there's nothing wrong with that but I have really come to appreciate the word shepherd now the caveat there and it's not necessarily anything wrong but the thing there that sometimes people use is pastor and so a lot of people get that confused when they refer to the pastor you know preachers certainly get that a lot someone calls the building I'm looking for the pastor Uh, now that makes it very easy just to say well hey call Jerry or Charles don't don't call me I'm just kidding Uh, but that's you know they mean the preacher but they'll say the word pastor But I like that idea of shepherding. Sometimes when we think of overseeing or we think of elders, it's easy for us to get caught up in taking every single problem to these men. There is not enough paper towels. You know, there's not enough pencils and all of these things. And I'm not saying they can't handle that and they shouldn't be maybe a part of handling that. But they are really to be shepherding and equipping the congregation to know the faith to teach the faith, to defend the faith. They are to shepherd the sheep, to protect, as we said just a moment ago, to lead the sheep and the church with vision and with faith. And so the terms that are used kind of give us an idea of the work of an elder. Number two, the qualifications that are given allow us to have an idea of the work of an elder. Some sign of all the qualifications must be seen in the life of an elder, of each elder. And there's really three groups that were listed here in the book, and I think if you're making notes, you like to write these things down, there are three kind of good thoughts. Um, When we think about the qualifications, we might group them in number one, domestic. There are things that speak of the home, the family, the wife, domestic. Number two, social. We think about elders, an elder is an elder over our congregation, but elders are known in the community, hopefully, as people. They may interact with a job or in the you know, local sports league or, or something like that. So in a social sense, 
So number one, domestic, number two, social, and of course, number three, spiritual. These qualifications speak to all three of these groups uh, or areas and their responsibilities. Uh, spiritual may be the most important, but yes, other things are listed there. They have, an, they have a reputation. I mean, that's part of the idea of blameless is that nothing sort of sticks to them because people in the social uh, community would say, well, you know what? I know what I might have heard about Carl or Bob, but, but I know that's not true. What somebody else told me because I know their reputation in a social kind of sense. And so sometimes we learn a little bit about their work and the qualifications that are given. Number three, we learn a little bit about the work of an elder that is seen in their leading by consent. Leading by consent. You know, I got that question recently. Somebody asked me, uh, even leaving the building here, uh, someone that was visiting was talking about, uh, you know, how do I join your church? You know, that's the kind of phrase that is used. How do I join the church here or something like that? Well, it is certainly important that people be a part of a congregation and more than just saying, hey, I go to the Saudi Church of Christ, but they are consenting to being led by the eldership. People choose to belong to a certain congregation and to place themselves under its elders. That's part of what is important there. That's how you are fed. That's how you make connection. Once again, this bleeds over a little bit into our Wednesday night study, talking about how we help one another and the, the book Church Reset. But leading by consent means that elders understand that they are not lords over the flock. That's a reference back again to 1 Peter chapter 5. And verse number 3, we referenced verse 2 a moment ago. Verse 3, that they do not lord it over the people. It's not a boss kind of way, but they are to provide leadership by example and persuasion. Uh, you know, I try to, hopefully, f fairly often as people bring things to me, that's great. I'd love to listen. I'll talk. Whatever you want to do. But sometimes you need to go see the elders. You need to take that to an elder. You need to talk to them about any number of things going on with the building, the physical nature of the work here, the work that we do, or if you're having a problem. Because these men often, they often long for that. You know, if you really pulled them aside and asked them, they want that. They'd rather be helping you with some of those things in your life than dealing with the pencils and the paper towels and those kinds of things. They want to be able to pray with you and for you. But they lead by consent. And when you connect with a congregation, and we do sometimes use the phrase join or something like that, you're, you know, consenting to being a part of their guidance and their example, and hopefully it's what it should be. Number four, we learn about the work of an elder that is seen in their decision-making. Now, once again, it's a balance. Elders are more than just decision-makers or carpet color picker-outers or whatever you want to say, but they must make many decisions. Hopefully, to do this successfully, successfully elders study, study the scriptures on their own. Not just learning in class or from sermons, but study on their own or together. Hopefully they pray. Hopefully they seek advice. Hopefully they weigh the alternatives. And very often, hopefully they take as much time as needed. Some things you're not able to wait or put off, but they take as much time as needed. And after all those things are consulted or, or, or done, decisions are made. And hopefully then our elders are able to make decisions that are not second-guessed. You know, just rushing things out or not having fully studied it. And so we see that their work is done sometimes in decision-making. Number five, the work of elders is seen in equipping the saints for service. Again, we've talked about this from Ephesians chapter 4. We mentioned verse 11 just a moment ago that he gave some to be pastors. Again, from the New King James, the word there used is pastors. But in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so they are to be equipping the saints. And this gets right back into that Great Commission cycle that we've touched on on Wednesday nights. If you've been with us or able to watch online, um, that goes to the Great Commission. But it just also goes to the work that is done here together. All members are important. All members are necessary. And each one must be equipped to do his or her part. If you turn to Ephesians 4, look at verse 16. Or verse 15, but speaking the truth in love that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, what every, the part that every person plays according to the effective working by which every part does its share and causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself 
in love. We did touch on this. It may have been Wednesday night as we talked about the fact that not everybody is a social person. Not everybody stands around and talks or wants to be here and visit like that. Maybe they get a little anxious in that kind of setting, but maybe they're able to help someone. Maybe they're able to pick up someone who can't come to services and drive them to services and then take them home again and serve in that way. But guess what? It takes all of us. And it takes all of us doing any number of jobs, all the things that need to be done. So each person, each saint must be equipped for the service. And hopefully our elders are trying to encourage us in that and that we can be edified. And just like verse 16 is a beautiful thought there. Every part does its share and causes growth. That's what we are, of course, after. And then number six here, the work of elders is seen in conflict resolution, the part that nobody really likes to think about sometimes. But of course, this is a divine plan. We think about several places. You may think about Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, where that's mentioned. Matthew 18, 15 through 18, also in Matthew chapter 5. You remember that it's mentioned, Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. If a person is going to the altar, they should leave their gift and go and find their brother and fix this problem. Conflicts should be seriously considered. Conflicts should not just simply be forgotten. Because if they are unresolved, they might need to be taken to the whole church. This is something a couple of us men were discussing recently. Sometimes there are things that may need to remain private for a time or for a reason, but other times things are better when they are just shared so that people know and that things can be prayed for, people can be helped. Elders have a hard decision to make sometimes in regards to that and what exactly to do, but how conflicts are handled affects our relationship with God. Certainly we are each one responsible for our own selves. You know, we're not going to stand before God on the day of judgment and say, well, you know what, I just had these sorry elders and it's, it's all their fault. No, we will each one give account for what we have done but of course, as we work together, conflicts need to be handled so that our relationship with one another and with God can be right. In matters of faith, the scriptures are always the last word. In matters of opinion, of judgment, or maybe expediency, often the elders have to decide. And we have to decide if we're going to be willing to be led by that and submit to that decision. If we're going to continue as members here, we do, we should. Not just keep it and let it fester, have a problem. We can certainly go to them. But as they make decisions in matters of expediency, they can decide, will decide, and then we, as members of this congregation, then follow along with that. But the work of elders is seen in conflict resolution as well. Uh, one last thought or principle here. The elders have responsibility to the church. Let us never forget that. But let us also never forget that the church has responsibilities to the elders. If you're following along in your Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, the very end of the book of Hebrews. Specifically, we're going to look at verse 17. But let us always remember that elders do have responsibilities to the church, but the church has responsibilities to the elders. Verse 17, obey those who rule over you. If we're not careful, this has that negative context again, connotation to it. The person says, well, they're not my boss. They're not going to tell me what to do. But keep reading, obey those who, who lead you. It's kind of the literal sense of the word there, who lead you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls. As those who must give account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. A great passage, a great verse here by the Hebrew writer to encourage us to understand this relationship and the way that we need to work together. We need to humbly submit to their experienced leadership. Now, in connection with that, elders need to serve in a worthy manner. They need to make sure that they maintain those qualifications, in a sense, that, that they continue to follow after those and, and strive to be those. But when elders are worthy as godly leaders, they can carry out their duties joyfully and not under stress or aggravation. Because when they're doing it under stress and aggravation, they're not able to function in a profitable way. Brother Wayne Jackson, in his commentary on elders on this particular, well, on the New Testament, but this particular passage says, Woe to church members who make the elders' burdens heavier. It's really easy. Notice I said that they would love for you to come to them and, and suggest to them or maybe share with them the troubles that you're having. 
But it's not, hey, go to them every time you have a problem and just dump it all over them, you know, and give them stress and aggravation. Woe to those who give them heavier burdens. There is no doubt that there is, it's a hard, it is a hard job, that they receive information and tasks and decisions that are hard. But certainly we can make it harder when we uh, rely upon them for every single detail and struggle with those things and, and kind of give them grief, which makes it them not able to serve with a joyful attitude and in the right way. You know a lot about elders. We have talked a lot about elders. Elders have been covered here before. Hopefully that's just a little something to encourage you to think about it again. As always, I think that I can say safely here that, that we are uh, concerned about our elders, want to pray for them. They are concerned about us, want us to be thinking about you know, men who can serve in the future, continuing to pray for them and that kind of thing. But it's certainly something that is worthy of our attention. And there's lots of more studying that could be done. We have lots of books and resources if you would like to continue and to do that. As we conclude this lesson, we pause as we do and extend heaven's invitation. And that is that a person may be here this afternoon who stands in need of making their life right with God. It could be that it is by becoming a child of God, putting on Christ in baptism, allowing his blood to wash away your sins. If you would like to know more about that, we'd love to study with you as soon as possible. Maybe you're here and you're a child of God and you realize uh, that something's not right. You want to make it right before you leave today. There's no sense in anyone leaving with a, a heavy burden, with something separating them from God. We're thankful to be here together, to be able to sing this song and to pray for one another. All it takes is for us to have that courage, to have that strength, to, to rely upon one another. And if you're here and you need to become a Christian or come back to him, we'll be singing to encourage you as we stand together and as we sing.